Where do you start with your self-discovery journey? Accepting who you are and recognizing that you are the only one that is able to set you free will slowly begin to change the view of your current situation. I'm Dr. Jessica Metcalf, and this is Speak Kindly, You're Listening. Don't forget to check out the book with the same name that inspired it all on Amazon, Chapters Indigo, and Barnes & Noble. With me today is Naz L'Oreal, founder and managing director of an all-women strategic and creative communications agency called 50th Parallel Public Relations, and they specialize in working with marginalized communities and individuals. The child of a refugee and immigrant, Naz often found herself in the position to speak on behalf of her family, and so it was natural to gravitate to work in communications. Naz has spent a decade working with over 30 Indigenous communities in Canada and much longer in professional communications for -for not-for-profits, thought leaders, and purpose-driven businesses. On today's episode, Naz will share on how trusting the process of self-love can look different for everyone. Here we go. Naz, thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited. We had met only a couple of weeks ago at an in-person event, and I was truly moved by what you're doing and putting out into the world. And I really just want to start off and ask you, that inner voice that we have at times, which can be quite negative, is there a point in time where you struggled significantly to understand why it was speaking so negatively to you? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I was really excited to be asked to be on this podcast episode and get to talk about this because it's been something that's been so prominent in my life and in a lot of different stages. And one thing that I shared with you before we hopped on was, you know, I, at a very early age, didn't realize where my place was in the world. I come from a mixed race family. My dad is Kurdish from Iraq and my mom is Guyanese. And so myself and my siblings, we kind of are like this very unique mix of very diverse cultures, but I'm I'm pretty certain that you won't find anyone else in the world that has the same mix that we are. And so like I was just born into this space of, of being different But then I also grew up in a very like white community in Ontario in Southwestern Ontario. And I really wanted to just be like my friends and my parents, like they came in the seventies and at the time they felt like they had to hide their culture. And so I grew up not being able to speak my dad's first language because he wanted us to speak impeccable English. He didn't want us to stand out in any way. And so when I was a teenager, it really became more prevalent to me how different I was. Because at the time, I thought I was just like my friends who, you know, their families had been in Canada for generations. They were visibly white and majority. And I didn't know I was really brown, I would say, until I was probably 14. And I remember the the moment I was at the time, it was like Big V, now it's shoppers, but I was in a Big V parking lot with my mom. And she had said something about this girl walking by and she looked like me. She said, oh, that girl looks like you. And I'm like, no, mom, she she doesn't look like me. Like, we're not the same. We don't look anything alike. And she's like, yes, you look like her. And she was a really beautiful East Indian woman. But at the time I was like, oh, it had triggered something in me that I then felt like I stood out. And that's all people could see. That's like at 14, all of a sudden recognizing 
that you weren't who you thought you were. Mm-hmm. Where did it go from there next? Like, how did that dialogue in your head start to change how you showed up with friends or meeting new people? Mm-hmm. Well, I felt in some ways embarrassed and I knew I was different when I was younger. I will say that, but I still thought I was, I could relate to my friends on a, on the same level. You know, the reason why I thought I was different was because my parents were very strict and I grew up in a very strong control culture with my mom being very strict with rules and how I dressed and the friends that I had and what I could do after school. So I thought that that was the reason why I was different. But when I was 14 and realized it was actually the way I looked, I kind of withdrew within myself. And that's kind of what I've noticed with myself when, you know, if there's trauma or stress, I like withdraw and I kind of keep to myself and I got really quiet. I was a really outgoing kid up until that point. And I got really shy because I didn't know how to show up in the world anymore. I didn't know, see, I didn't see a lot of people who looked like me in pop culture and like they weren't people who looked like me. They weren't portrayed as beautiful or strong or independent. And these were all the things that I wanted to be portrayed as. And so I had this moment where, yeah, I, I kind of isolated myself in some ways. At the time, I was also processing some childhood trauma that was coming up at the same time. There was a lot to go through. I know my mom had to put me in therapy at the time to unpack a lot of this because I was almost going through this, like, actually, in my life, I'll say I'd gone through two two identity crises, and this was the first one that I went through. If your mom had never pointed it out to you that day when you were 14... Do you think that would have eventually made itself known or would that have changed the shyness component of it? I think I would still have been more outgoing and I don't think it would have impacted my relationships with friends as much. The second time I had my identity crisis was actually in my early 20s when I left my home and moved across the country to Northwestern BC and like kind of outside of that control culture I'd grown up with. I think it would have been just more of an extreme experience that second time around had I not gone through it when I was 14. What was the voice, that inner gremlin, inner critic, whatever you choose to label it as, what was that inner dialogue saying to you about standing out? Mm-hmm. It was telling me that I didn't belong. It was telling me I wasn't as attractive or as beautiful as my other friends. I wasn't desirable. I was hard to, I I was already self-conscious about my name being different from my friends at the time and like very unique. And I I remember going into gas stations and looking for, you know, when they had those personalized license plate keychains and I could never find my name in the, in the carousel of keychain names. And so it was telling me that, yeah, I didn't belong. I was different. I stood out. I was not attractive. And that my voice wasn't as strong as others. Like what I wanted in the world and what I had to say, it didn't carry as much weight as other people did. How did that then start to flow into work aspect and how you started to grow as a professional? Because I was able to work through it at that time. And then I had to work through it again in my early 20s. I think that's why I ended up where I did with work and working with Indigenous communities um, and underserved communities because I felt like I could relate in some ways. I felt like I too felt by being different, I didn't have a voice. I didn't know where to access the tools 
to feel like I had value in what I had to say. And when I have conversations with some of our clients now about how they feel about how media portrays them and what other people in their community say about them, it it takes me back to how I was when I was 14 and feeling like such an outsider and feeling like I didn't matter. And it really like almost empowers me. It like energizes me to be like, no, like there you do, you absolutely do. And here's why. And this is how you leverage these tools. And this is how you can really empower other people to know. And you're you, a lot of the time we work with Indigenous individuals that have children or grandchildren. And so we like to speak from the perspective of like, this is how you can empower future generations and the youth in your community. And so it's allowed me to be able to speak in a way that that I relate to others. Of course, everyone has their own personal experiences and like Indigenous communities have their own lived experiences that I can't relate to. But I think being that person that felt like I stood out and didn't belong, I think it offers a layer of strength. And I can sit with people a bit longer when they're having those conversations because I too have felt that way. You have a blog post that recently came out. And I know that this was a conversation that we had talked about on if you should be talking about it. And I really like how you're starting to share your story about being a non-Indigenous individual, but supporting the Indigenous communities. Mm. What was the struggle that you found? Because I know that this is something that you had mentioned of, should I even put it out there? Mm-hmm. What was behind that voice? I've been doing work with Indigenous communities for 10 years now. And in the beginning, you can kind of do it and be behind the scenes. And I think when you're in PR and communications, that's kind of the job is to prop up others and to elevate others. So I kind of got used to just like, you know, I'm I'm just working behind the scenes. You can take, you can show up and you can present anything that I work on and I'll just work behind the scenes and I'll just train you to do some of the things that I'm doing. And it was almost expected of a non-Indigenous person working with Indigenous communities to not take any credit for their work at the time. And I do, I had experienced that up until five years ago. And then this kind of Kamloops findings of the unmarked graves happened. And it was a catalyst for Indigenous issues in Canada. And more and more people wanted to get involved with working with communities and Indigenous organizations, especially a lot of non-Indigenous people, right? And they wanted to try to, you know, there's so many conversations about their place in working with communities and what that could look like. And of course, you know, reconciliation is an Indigenous-led process. But where is that piece that non-Indigenous people can fill that is also working towards reconciliation? And so this had been kind of brewing under the surface for a while when I wanted to talk about it more, but the voice behind me was like, you're not Indigenous, so you don't, this isn't your place to talk about. And I had to work through that and then realize, of course, I'm non-Indigenous. I shouldn't be Indigenous. And once I really sat with that is that, you know, I'm actually helping those who aren't Indigenous, who want to do this work. And I'm doing it in a way that's speaking to my own personal experience. But definitely, like I had, I had so many, it probably held me back for at least a couple of years of starting to write about this stuff because I was like, who am I to write about working with Indigenous communities is not Indigenous person, but I think that that's exactly the point. I appreciate that you put a time frame on it because I think that that's what a lot of people try to navigate is the understanding, okay, if I'm getting in my own way and trying to navigate what is 
preventing me from putting myself out there, how long does that take? And some people I've spoken to and coached through have taken them decades, but it doesn't have to take that long either. It can be a matter of a couple of years. It can be months when you start to move through it. So what would you say for those who are listening and who are stuck in putting themselves out there and really wanting to support a cause and then putting themselves or being the face for whatever that cause is, what would you say worked for you to be able to finally click the, okay, this is live now and I'm putting Mm -hmm. it out into the world? I think all that work that I did, so I worked with a thought leadership strategist because I wanted to speak more about this issue, but I also wanted to speak to my childhood trauma that I had experienced and the control environment that I had grown up in and growing up as a mixed race individual with parents who both had like immigrated um, to Canada when my father is a war refugee. And so I'm like, what are, how, how do all these pieces come together? Because these pieces are when you put them together, my whole self, it's just not this work I do with indigenous communities, but it's all the other stuff. And so I had to take a step back and do that deeply personal work before I could start writing about this. And something I speak a lot about when I present about how municipalities can work more meaningfully with indigenous communities. I always say you have to understand your own values, your own story first before you can do this work because it can't be meaningful unless you align it with your own values and what you're trying to achieve by doing this work. And so it's it's unpacking that. So it's deeply uncomfortable to go back to, for me especially, like even though I continue to do therapy, like I think it's like maintenance and it's an ongoing journey I've been on since I was a child And this added kind of like taking a step back and looking at my whole story and why I ended up getting into what I ended up, you know, sometimes I think I fell into what I got into, but I think, you know, it was the calling for me in some ways because so much of the work that we do now is giving a voice to that 14 year old that I was, felt like I didn't have one at the time. Getting into those moments of being deeply uncomfortable with your own, let's call it shit at times, right? It's it's navigating through the uncharted waters, when it does get uncomfortable, what is something that helps you move through it or allows acceptance? It's always different for me because there's so many different things that trigger that feeling. And like, depending on what it is, I'll do a different thing. Writing helps me a lot. It was a way that I processed a lot of the big emotions that I had when I was a child it wouldn't be necessarily always writing or journaling. It would be almost like writing a story. And so sometimes that helps me process things. I, in another life, thought I was going to be a journalist or a writer. And so I always like would get up and in the morning and write um, short stories. And so sometimes that helps still for me, like unpack some of my feelings and emotions around, you know, these obstacles I come up with my inner voice or my inner gremlin holding me back. So that usually helps talking, talking it out with people who I feel like experience the same challenges also help a lot. 
But I definitely think now that moving into this blog space, that has helped a lot with me process things because I get a lot of wonder, wonderful feedback when I put out these blog posts about people also kind of working through this uncomfortable stuff and they don't know where to start. And so that's kind of a space I want to help fill and support others in discovering that. But also like we live in the forest in Victoria and it's really nice to be close to nature. And so if I just need to go outside I had a naturopath tell me a year ago that I need to just breathe more <laughs> and it's such a simple thing or be outside more. And it, it was ironic because I live in the forest that I ne- I spent so much time during the pandemic inside and I'm feeling a bit isolated from others. And so now I get up in the morning and I take 10 deep breaths outside and just like notice things and slow down. And that's an uncomfortable space for me to be in, but I am doing it. And yin yoga is another one that I started doing. I was like, I would get very bored with that kind of yoga, but then I realized that's the point of me needing to slow down. So it's just making sure there's constant balance and it's not always perfect, but in some small ways, if I can find it in every day, that's my ideal. You hit key daily healthy habits that are really important. And At times, especially when we're turning towards social media and looking for potentially ideas or even checking out Google and trying to find those ideas and narrowing down, I appreciate that you now have a system that you know works for you. And when we start to talk about self-care and we're trying to navigate through and we're in those deepest, darkest moments of our life and we see someone saying, oh, journal, oh, meditate, oh, breathe and stuff like that. It's like, oh, I've done that. And why isn't it working? So what would you tell to someone who is really struggling, sitting in that discomfort and are trying different activities, but can't necessarily find the ones that work for them or it's just not working yet. I mean, it's a lot of trusting that it will work. I think that what happens for me in those moments is I remember how strong and resilient I am. And so it's not always the actual like breathing or doing in and stretching. It's not the actual activity that's helping. It's the holding space to remember that I have overcome and I will continue to overcome. And so I tell myself a lot of the time in those moments that you have all the tools you need to do this. You are competent, you're strong, you're resilient, and you've done this before. And while like some of the challenges are not always a carbon copy of one another, they're still challenges and they always come at the wrong time. And I always find that they show up when you're dealing like personal work stuff always happens at once for me. It just does. And I've learned to accept it. And I mean, I have a really, I'm really lucky to have a supportive partner who I've been with for over a decade, who kind of like is very good at my, about reading my body language when I'm not feeling great. And so we've kind of established, like, I don't always have to tell him when I, when I need something or when I, when I need space, but It is something I have to work on as well. But I think if you're like, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, it's not working. I think you just have to trust in the process and just remember that you're not going to get instant gratification. It's really long-term. And like everything that I've done is like a slow burn, like my business, the growth of the business and everything we do around it. It's not about instant success. It's about long-term sustainability and it's about embracing the challenges and adapting and surviving sometimes like that was a big word for me in 2020 so yeah just it takes time it takes patience it those are all things that are hard to 
work through sometimes, but you do in some small ways see shift happening when you can commit to consistently putting yourself first in that way. This has been absolutely amazing because we've touched on your story, some habits to start to make changes and that discomfort that can come up. My last question to you, when someone is sitting in that discomfort and noticing that personal professional overlap that happens all at the exact same time, because I 100% agree with you. It's like (laughs) everything's going well. And then it's like worlds colliding. And you're like, okay, this is just something I have to work through. And then that is it. So if someone is sitting in that discomfort, and that negative voice is just tearing them down, what would you say to them? I thrive in the gritty. So that is something I've learned about myself. And one meditation podcast I listen to is they always end with saying, you got this. And so I kind of have a version of that for myself where I say, you got this, your life is gritty and gold. And so kind of having a bit of a mantra around, I know for myself, I learn the most about myself when life is the most tricky and complicated. And so while that sounds very romanticized in some ways, I think that the struggles, the pain, the challenges are very real. And I've learned to have to not numb myself from them, but actually experience them. And I think that, uh, in the end, it's just you. In the end, it's just you. And so I had a yoga teacher tell me that once. And I always remember that I'm living this life, yes, for my the people that I work with and work for and my family, but it's all really it's for me, right? And so I have to make the decisions that are best suited for me a lot of the time. And so for someone who's going through that, I think they need to see, okay, what is no longer serving me that's making me feel like this? Or what changes do I need to make to feel like my best self? And, you know, going through that discovery is really important because you're always going to be back there. But it's like no guarantee that you're never going to be back there. It's kind of like you have different moments in your life that bring you back there. And to have the tools to be able to cope with that, I think are really important. And yeah, to get comfortable with being comfortable is also important. Thank you so much for spending this time and sharing your words of wisdom. (laughs) Such a pleasure. Thank you. Naz really laid out a crucial step that we all need to take. Realizing that you have to accept where you are at so you can begin the process of change to then better love yourself. Self-acceptance is no easy feat, especially for the high achiever who is constantly creating self-invented pressures. Key takeaways from today. Number one, daily healthy habits improve your self-care. And I'm not talking about what social media portrays as self-care is having a glass of wine, a piece of chocolate cake, or taking a bubble bath or that one vacation. Yes, those are important if they work for you, but I'm talking about the gritty and dirty habits of day-to-day self-care, which include asking yourself what you need when you experience heavy emotions. It's eating foods that nourish you. It's taking care of your mind and body and soul in ways that are personal to you. It's asking yourself what you really and truly need. Number two, embracing the challenge that comes from loving yourself is important to survive the journey ahead. I'm all for savoring success and sharing your wins. Don't get me wrong, for the high achiever who experiences imposter syndrome, they need to get comfortable with bragging a little bit more about themselves. However, it is just as important to savor those challenges that have pushed you outside your comfort zone or had you finding a different perspective. And in that challenge, you may not learn the lesson right away, but it's okay to embrace the challenge nonetheless. Every episode will have a reflection question and this is yours for today. How will you start on your self-discovery journey? 
And if you've already started, what checkpoints do you have in place along that journey to reassess and evaluate how it's going? When you've found your answer, send me a DM on Instagram or an email to info at drjessicametcalf.com. That's info at drjessicametcalfe.com. Thank you so much for joining us today. And when you hear your inner gremlin, ask yourself, would I say this to a loved one? And if your answer is no, then it's time for a reframe. Speak kindly. You're listening.